You're listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more information about the House and our events on our website. Good evening, everyone, and a very warm welcome to the House of Literature, and welcome back to those of you who have been here uh, for uh, the earlier uh, sections of this opening week program. My name is Andreas Delset. I'm the Artistic Director at the House of Literature, and I'm particularly proud to uh, bid welcome and introduce uh, a writer when we can gather such an amazing audience for someone who's not even translated to Norwegian yet. Uh, this opening week of our op- autumn program is devoted to the literary explorations of racism, power, whiteness, and privilege, attempting, attempting to ignite some new modes of conversation about these issues. And I am quite confident we will achieve this tonight as we now shift, uh, not only shift the geographical focus from the US uh, to Nigeria, and as we move into the very interesting literary landscape of the megacity of Lagos. Indeed, a character in itself in the novel that is the main focus here tonight. Black Ass is the title of that book, and the black ass belongs to Furu Wariboko, a young man like so many others in this world, unemployed, working hard to try and land a job and a path for his future. But then, on the morning of a crucial job interview, he wakes up and discovers He has turned white. What to do with that? (laughs) Uh, Furo not only goes through a Kafkaesque metamorphosis of a magnitude in a place where skin color, just like here in Norway, means a great deal, only also something very different. Black Ass is the first novel of Igeni Barrett, who was born in Bort Harcourt, Nigeria, in 1979 and made his literary debut with a collection of short stories in 2005. His 2013 publication, Love is Power, or something like that, a a short story collection, uh, was released to critical acclaim and led Barrett to be included in the Hay Festival list of the 39 best sub-Saharan writers under the age of 40. Now that he has passed 40 this spring, sorry for mentioning it, (laughs) uh, we can easily uh, put him into the other category of the 39 best sub-Saharan writers, regardless of age. And we are very happy and honored that he accepted our invitation. And uh, as he comes on stage now, uh, he will be in conversation with Anne Farsetos, uh, the cultural editor of Mornbladet, and the author of Grenseverdier, uh, a book about the relationship between fiction and nonfiction, uh, and many other topics arising from that uh, in world literature, published last year. Uh, they come on stage and they will start with, uh, we will just at the beginning hear, hear Igni read a bit from Black Ass. With them welcome, Anna Forstos and Igni Barrett. Thank you. Here's your book, Igni. Oh, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> if you will just read from the beginning to get a little flavor. So, I'm going to read the opening section. It's going to be a short reading, one paragraph, but it sets the context for what happens later. Furo Wariboko, I woke this morning to find that dreams can lose their way and turn up on the wrong side of sleep. 
He was lying nude in bed, and when he raised his head a fraction, he could see his alabaster belly, his pale legs beyond, covered with furs that glittered bronze in the cold daylight pouring in through the open window. He sat up with a sudden motion that swilled the panic in his stomach and spilled his hands into his lap. He stared at his hands, the pink lifelines in his palms, the shellfish-colored cuticles, the network of blue veins that ran from knuckle to wrist, more veins than he had ever noticed before. His hands were not black but white, same as his legs, his belly, all of him. He clenched his fists, squeezed his eyes shut, and sank onto the bed. Outside, a bird chirruped short piercing cries like mocking laughter. That's it. <laughs> so, as we've heard, um, Furu, a little bit like Gregor Samsa, wakes up to find he has been transformed. Uh, not into a beetle, but his skin is transformed. But unlike Gregor Samsa, who just stays in his house, mm -hmm. uh, Furu, he leaves his family and goes out into the city to yeah. meet people. Uh, and when he's out there, he's uh, always met with this uh, like greeting where people say to him uh, a word, uh, oyibo. Yeah. What does that mean? That's a big word. Yeah. Um, in the sense that oyibo, the way we say it in Nigeria, oyibo, it means stranger. It's a word that comes out of the Igbo language but has migrated into every other Nigerian language. And so every other language had a term for a foreigner, for a person of a different skin color. But then Oyibo became the Nigerian word for white person. But then that term also has its layers. So in the sense that in contemporary Nigeria, Oyibo also means Chinese person. Oh, really? It also means Indian person. It also <laughs> means an Ameri African American person. Really? You know, it means so it's a term that has all sorts of, you know, if you, I mean, for example, you would have, um, I have the term Oyibo has been used towards me. So, for example, I would say when I was a child and I'll be reading a book um, and my friend, you know, my age mates, my younger brother and his friends were playing outside. My, you know, sometimes my grandmother will come to me and say, why are you acting like an Oyibo? <laughs> you know, go outside and play. <laughs> you know, so in that sense, so it has all these other things that are added onto it, but at its base, in its purest form, Oyibo means foreigner, and a foreigner who's a light-skinned person. Mm. And it means, like, not one of us? Or... Yes, it means coming from a far place, mm. you know, in a sense. Um, but now it also means many other things. Mm. But then it depends on how you use the word. Mm. And, and Oyibo, for many people, can be used in a friendly way, mm. can also be used in an unfriendly way, and mm. can be used in an objective way. It depends on how you use it. Mm. And does it also have like a social, economic? Uh, Not really. No? I mean, in the sense that if this, the socioeconomic part of it comes from who it's used, you know, who, who, who the, word, the word is directed towards. So if you say a white American is an Oyibo, the assumption is that, okay, you're using the word in its objective sense, and that means this is a white person who comes with all the, you know, the addenda, you know, the, the, the power, the access to wealth, 
Um, but if you use it, for example, towards an albino, then it's used in a more humorous way mm. or in a more, you know, it depends on how you use it. Mm. But it, and so if you're using it towards a white person, then people just make their assumptions about what you mean by Oyibo. Mm. And that is what happens to him. He meets these assumptions that uh, he is... Um, for example, wealthy and rich uh, yes. because uh, of his new yeah. skin color. Because of how he looks. And yeah. how he looks. And then those assumptions are challenged immediately when he opens his mouth. Because even though he turned white, he still speaks like a Nigerian. You know, <laughs> <laughs> he's still educated as a Nigerian. And so a lot of people are confused by how can you be white but sound like us? You know, and you know, and so there are people who ask him, "Are you albino?" Yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> And um, this whole concept of uh, metamorphosis, it yeah. opens the book uh, with a quote from Kafka, and yeah. uh, towards the end there's a quote from Ovid's uh, metamorphosis. Yeah. Why did you feel, want to like, have the concept of metamorphosis? So, what, why is that so central in this book? Well, it was central because the idea itself felt like... Um, when I sat down to write this book, I thought I was doing something different. You know, at that time I'd written my I'd written two books of short stories, um, two collection of collections of short stories, and felt I needed to write a novel. You know, I didn't want to become the Alice Munro of Nigeria, uh, forever <laughs> trapped in the short story. And so, but when I sat down to write a short a novel for one year, I found myself trying to do what I felt other people wanted me to do, which was to write about Nigeria, to write about the family. But I found that so boring. You know, it felt like, you know, this is what is expected. And so at some point I decided, let me try something different. And so I went, I have this little book where I write all my ideas down. And many years before I'd written this idea down about a white man, a, a young Nigerian man wakes up on the morning of a job interview to discover he's turned white. And so I felt, well, that's an idea that, you know, is different. That's an idea that feels, that will challenge me. And, so I, and then I sat down to write it thinking, well, it's not going to be a book. Mm. So that it's, it's, I, I give myself the freedom to fail at writing it. Um, but when I sat down to write it, the first thing that struck me was that this is the metamorphosis. And so at that point, because, again, I was trying, trying to avoid writing, basically <laughs> I, was, you know, I went, decided to drop the, my novel and go read The Metamorphosis by Franz Kafka. But then, because at the back of my mind, I had this idea that I was going to write a book, um, I realized that my reading of the metamorphosis had changed. I'd read it like five to ten times before mm. and always enjoyed it. But this time, I kept thinking, okay, what if Gregor Zamza had gone out into Prague? Mm. And I'm curious to see, this is Prague just before the Nazis came. What was it like being Kafka in a European city that spoke German, you know, in a... Czechoslovakian city that, that spoke German. And so I was just curious about society itself and found myself thinking, I wish, you know, Gregor Zamza as a beetle or as an insect had gone out into wider society and tried to become the king of the cockroaches rather than <laughs> trying to win the affection of his family. Anyway, when I finished reading that, book, you know, that story, I realized what my own preoccupations are and how I, I would address my own story. Mm -hmm. And so... Coming and that allowed me, you know, craft the first, the opening mm. to my book. But once I'd set down that path, you know, it's, it's a slippery one. So once you start, <laughs> you know, you know, basing your, you know, responding in a sense to ideas 
and then finding your own way to interrogate those ideas, then you just find they keep coming. You know, they keep coming from, you know, out of the woodwork. And so in that sense, that's how, you know, I kept quoting out of things that inspired me to explore parts of Lagos society or Nigerian society or my characters, you know, in our life. Mm. Um, and I felt I needed to present that, that this is, these are the preoccupations of the book, mm. in a sense. And so you were thinking that Gregor Samsa, as a Beatle, he would have a, like a different perspective on Prague than someone looking like everyone else. Oh, yes, yeah. I was interested in that in perspective. That, yeah. yeah. And also interested in seeing Prague through his eyes. Because for me, which is where I realized that, in a sense, keep in mind that when I sat down to write this book, I was running away from a novel about family. <laughs> and so my character had, had to run away from family. <laughs> but in a sense, I was also interested in the wider family, which is society, mm. um, which, in a sense, I didn't get from Franz Kafka's story. It wasn't what he was interested in in that story. Mm. But I knew that that was what I was interested in as a writer, and... Um, and what I thought my character would be, would encounter. So, so in a sense, what I was interested in is what my character had to do. Yeah. <laughs> no. And uh, how did the transformation uh, of him being white help you in uh, describing Lagos <laughs> as a city or that society in a different way than you could have done without the devices? The first thing it did was that it allowed me, as a writer, um, see Lagos with, you know, with new eyes. So because I was now trying to enter the mind of a character who was Nigerian, like me, but who looked different. So I had to, in a sense, I understood his Nigerianness, but then I also had to understand his whiteness. For example, one of the first mistakes I made in the book, which I quickly cut myself <laughs> within a few sentences, was that white skin comes with a thing called sunburn. You know, and it's sunburn <laughs> is something I never have to deal with. You don't anywhere have a, in the a world. experience with exactly. that. Exactly. <laughs> and then my character is walking in the sun after three hours. I realized, my goodness, what about sunburn? So, in, <laughs> you know, so in a sense, I had to begin to understand why it's so important for, you know, white people who come to Lagos to always have on some sun-blocking agent mm. because my character had to experience that. And in a sense, I had to think mm. like a white person physiologically. But also as a white person, as, as, a, as a foreigner, someone who's always called out because of the way you look, which is something I'm accustomed to as a black person in white majority societies. So that was easy to understand mm. in a sense. But what was even harder to understand was well, not harder, but what was different and what I had to be very careful about understanding was how it felt to be looked at as different, but in a positive way. Yeah. You know? Mm. And I experienced that, uh, you know, you know with, along with my character. Along with your character, because the positive that goes with it is that he's automatically seen as wealthy, so people who want to attach to him, yeah. women will be more interested in yeah. him. Uh, yeah. And he will get a job easier, yes. perhaps. And so the trappings, in a sense, of white supremacy, as we understand it, uh, was something I began to see even manifests itself in black majority countries without the characters actively looking for it. Because in a sense, this main character has woken up. He's a baby, basically. He's woken up. He's a baby as a white man. Yeah. He's, he's a 33-year-old man who's been black his entire life. 
and wakes up white and is discovering whiteness as I, the author, is discovering whiteness. Mm. And so in a sense, we were both shocked by, <laughs> <laughs> by the advantages that were accrued based on how we looked. Um, whereas I needed to understand it because I had to understand in a way how to see that society and interpret what was going on. He, the character, just accepted it that, well, this is you know, what's happening and I'm going to take advantage of it, which was convenient for me as a writer. Because <laughs> how was it <laughs> you know, convenient? Um, it made him a character that was willing to go into darker places where you know, I didn't mm. want to create, in a sense, when I started the book, I didn't know what the character was going to turn out to be. Um, and so I left it up to the character to be a hero, an anti-hero, whatever. But um, I guess in some parts of my subconscious, I was more interested in seeing the ways in which you know, the character was willing to accept the advantages that were handed to him. And so, and so in that sense, it was convenient that he was a character that was amenable to that, that was willing mm. to take advantage of the... Um, the opportunities he got. Mm. Yeah. And what dark places would you say that he goes to? Um, one example is that I think he was too willing to accept the way people saw him. So, for example, among Nigerians, among Nigerian writers, I, I live in Lagos, and I have a lot of writer friends and, and painters and you know intellectuals. And we sit in our little groups and we complain about how, um, in a sense, we have to deal with living in Lagos, in a, in a, in a city where that's so big, 20 million people, that you are not a writer, you're just a person. So most times people see you, it's not, they don't see you as that intellectual, they don't see you as that writer, you're always just a person, which is, it frees you. So in a sense, mm -hmm. for me as a Lagosian, as someone living in Lagos, it allows me as a writer to observe. So I can stand in the middle of the market, wear a t-shirt and jeans, and just look, and nobody calls me out for that, which is a bit more difficult in, say, Oslo, you know, if I wanted to operate in that. So, so it has its advantages, but at the same time, it has the assumptions people make that, well, if you're just another one of us, then perhaps, you know, you're willing, you, you, you accept our prejudices or you accept our tribal affiliations or you accept the things that I as a writer want to try to write about in society and things I fight against. Um, um, but people, are, you know, the, the default position is that you're one of us and so you have the same, well, the majority of people don't see it as a problem. I'm seeing it as a problem, but you have the same issues that we have. Mm. And um, there's a part of me that likes to think, why don't you see me? Isn't there something in my face that looks intelligent? <laughs> <laughs> Isn't there, there is. some way that you can see that perhaps I am, you know, I am the Wallace Shoinka type? Yeah. You know? So in a sense, you, it's that push and pull of, you want to be part of the people, but you want to be different. Mm. It's also why you become a writer. I mean, what makes you think your voice is important? There's six, over six billion people on earth. Why do I think that I have something important to say? It's that arrogance mm. um, that manifests itself as a Nigerian, but it's also the humility mm. to know that, well, I am Nigerian and I have the faults of Nigerians, but perhaps I have also see what those faults uh, from a more intimate place and then can begin to try to tinker with them to, um, 
to change yeah. how people, yeah. Yeah, and you're talking about fault, faults and things that should be changed. What are those faults or those problems that you want to address? Hmm. <laughs> Trapped myself there. Yeah. Now, um, <laughs> faults. I say yeah. they're faults, but let me, that's a subjective view. Mm. Because for a majority of people, and when I say, I'm going to use my younger brother as an example here. I was brought up by a school teacher mother, and I happened to be the son that um, read the books at home, where my whereas my brother happened to be the son that went out into the world and played with friends. And so I have a peculiar situation here where I am. Um, the one writing, in a sense, about my people. But in a, growing up, I always felt I was the one who was missing something. I was the one who didn't quite understand how these boys rolled together. You know, I didn't quite understand girls, or Nigerian girls anyway. <laughs> I understood the girls in Mills and Boone yeah. romance novels, yeah. but I didn't quite <laughs> understand Nigerian girls. You know, and so in that sense, I've always felt like the outsider Inside. Yeah. Um, but then I've, I'm also the one who's thought about it, who's always felt, you know, I'm always trying to understand what it is that I'm missing in this picture that my brother didn't have to think about and just rolled with it. And so he's always, when we sit down at a bar with friends, with people, he's always the light of the party. <laughs> he's always the one who has the stories and knows and reads everyone, whereas I'm the one who's watching. <laughs> and trying to figure it out. Um, that's what for me as a writer. Um, and in a sense, this thing I'm calling faults, he probably won't see as faults. So for example, if, the part, if it's a group of men and you're talking about women in a certain way, I'm looking at it and thinking, well, you know. <laughs> but he's not seeing it as a fault. He's seeing it as, well, this as is fun. What, it's fun. Joke. This is a conversation. Yeah. This is how, what it feels like to be in. You know? And so in that sense... Um, so let me just say the mannerisms of Nigerians, some of which I see as false, but are not necessarily false in the larger picture, mm. just the way people are. <laughs> because it's interesting, because on the one level, it's obviously not a work of realism. People change their skin color overnight and gender, etc. Yeah. But on the other side, I feel as a reader that I get a picture of Lagos, of course. It's a novel. I cannot possibly know uh, yeah. uh, if, if this corresponds to the real Lagos. Yeah. But reading it, I feel that he walks through, when he walks through these streets and these situations, we meet different groups in yeah. society. Uh, and uh, like, for example, you meet the big girls, uh, which are women mm. that are okay. trying to get richer uh, yeah. men living off that. And you see people in the workplace, yeah. uh, how they struggle for, uh, for work. Yeah. Uh, are these... Are these realities, or do they reflect oh, sociological yeah. realities? These? these are realities, yeah. but keep in mind again that this is a peculiar case. This is yeah. a white man working in a black majority country. Um, and so his view of that country is, of course, limited. Um, for the vast majority of Nigerians, the issues Furo Wariboko is facing are not issues. Yeah. You know, that's not their life. Their life is about many other things. And so, and so it is one view of Lagos that is also a valid view of Lagos, but it's not the only view of Lagos. And so, and so yes, you can, you know, you can depend on the viewpoint or on the descriptions I give of Lagos, because in a sense, you know, he's seen Lagos and he's seen the same thing I'm seeing, 
or a black Nigerian is saying, but his interpretation and his, um, his engagement with it might be slightly different. But in the end, we're still seeing the same thing. And so in a sense, when Furo Waribaka walks, you know, walks into, meets a, a, a young lady and she's willing you know, to um, treat him in a certain way because of the way he looks, that will not happen to me. Um, but then I do know that in certain cases it exists. Mm. It's just not as widespread as it will seem it from his seem. perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's also, an, yeah. Having said that, yeah. I also have to mention that yes. in, um, this is something that occurs in many other societies. So, for example, um, it is possible to ex be exoticized in white majority countries. Of course. You know, you can be the person who stands out yeah. and who's given all these qualities based on how you look. And so, and so that's not peculiar to Lagos society in that sense, no, or to, no. nine, you know, to black societies, the black majority societies. But in this book, it just happened to be something that the, the um, story was interested in. Mm. So, yeah. There. Yes, because he is excitized uh, as well. Um, yeah, he's different. He's different, yeah. and uh, people find that fascinating and uh, yes. strange and scary and all of these things. Um, yeah, I mean, the scary, they didn't come up much. No. But, <laughs> <laughs> but they, they find it different. The, the, the point at which it diverges from what my experience has been of um, being black in white majority societies is that he stands out. So the first thing is that he's a black man, he's a white man in a black majority country. So in certain places he stands out, and in certain other places he doesn't. So there, he makes a decision early on in the book to move to a part of Lagos where he doesn't stand out as much. Mm. Um, and so it's possible within this space to decide on where you fit in. Yeah. The same way I can go to New York and decide, well, do I want to you know, go to some fancy hotel in Manhattan where... I probably stand out a lot more than I would, you know, in some, you know, nightclub in Brooklyn. Mm. You can make those decisions even within um, white majority societies. Yeah. And he makes that decision in Nigeria where, where, he, where he came from a part of Lagos that they didn't have a lot of white folks visiting. And so he stood out a lot. Mm. Um, and he quickly realizes that I need to move in a certain direction and, um, and then he begins to stand out less, but he still has all sorts of um, assumptions, you know, ascribed to him, yeah. um, uh, assumptions made by others about him. Um, so it's complicated. It's complicated because if you only hear the concept of this book without reading it or thinking much about it, it yeah. would be easy to say that just by turning it around, it's a, uh, it's a stand-in uh, for, uh, for talking about uh, exotization of black people in white society. But when you read it, that seems uh, a way too simple uh, a reading. Yeah, because exotization, you know, happens everywhere. You know, um, I mean, I, I went to an all-boys school, high school, when I was in an, growing up in Port Harcourt, in, in the Niger Delta of Nigeria. And then, and when I was in that school, when you saw a girl, she was exotic, because you didn't see girls enough. It was a boarding school, and so girls were like, you know. And then I, <laughs> in the last two years of my high school education, I was moved across the country to a mixed school. 
And I couldn't understand how the guys in my class could so easily speak with girls because they were like special, you know. <laughs> yeah. How can you just, how can you, you know. And so in that sense, what I'm trying to say is that when you're accustomed to being, seeing people of a certain type, gender, yeah. color, the person who's different stands out. Hmm. The difference I found in this book very quickly, which I hadn't thought about before writing the book, was what was described, what comes along with that difference. Mm. And whereas my reading, my experience, um, has shown that usually in white majority societies, that difference comes with a negative view. That in this case, my character seemed to be having a positive, you know, it was a positive discrimination, so yeah. to speak. That people saw him and they saw a dollar sign on his head. They saw him and they saw colonial powers. They saw him and they saw greater education. They saw him and they saw money. And so there were all these assumptions being made that had no grounding in fact. Mm. Um, and these were historical baggages that they carried that they were not aware of, mm. the majority of the people who were making these assumptions. The same as happens in white majority countries. A lot of these assumptions people make, they don't know, they don't realize the baggage that comes with it, mm. the images that have been, they've seen all their lives that have begun to form these views in them. And so, so in a sense, it's a mirror image of what happens. In, but in this book, I was focused on Lagos. Um, and I was glad if it was a book that could speak to other societies, which you want a novel to do. But I wanted to stay focused on that Lagosian situation. Mm. Yeah. So it's not even a Nigerian book in that sense. No, it's of Nigeria, it's, um, but it's a very Lagos book mm. focused on Lagos society. Mm. Yeah. Because, of course, they have all this baggage and that baggage isn't, uh, it's not balanced. Like the, uh, you can't say that this is just like a complete mirror image of what it's like to be uh, walking while black and seen mm. by white people because the baggage is of colonialism. There is, there is no, no balance there. Mm, guess so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's not a question. No, right? that's yeah. not a question. <laughs> you uh, also have a character that mm. is named after yourself, uh, has the first name as you have. Guilty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and again, it's not realism unless you transformed yourself into a woman and then back again for the sake of being here tonight. <laughs> <laughs> because this Igony character is also a creature that transforms. Yeah. Yeah. Who is this character and why did you give uh, this character your own name? I wanted to complicate the book for myself. Um, again... This was a writing exercise that turned out to be a publishable text. I thought it wasn't, because I thought, look, I'm writing a first novel. I have to give myself the freedom to fail, because the pressure of succeeding just felt too much. And so I said, I'm just going to chuck it all in, you know. Um, and so, in a sense, I was writing, running away from family. Um, and so that's what my character was doing. But at some point, I also realized, well... Once I'd finished the first section, I thought, I know where this book is going. And that's boring. Mm. So complicated. <laughs> you know? and, and that complication came from the text itself in the sense that as I was writing the story, when Furo met Sirita, the woman who became his love interest in the book, I realized he was carrying some baggage himself, mm. which was a sexist view. Um, and, so I, and then I began to realize, well, sexism, racism, isms, 
Okay. So, put a woman in the book. <laughs> <laughs> but make her three, you know. And so, in a sense, at some point in the book, I had put myself in. Because the character had gone to a, a part of Lagos that I like to visit to drink cappuccino because they have good cappuccino. <laughs> and I thought, what if I had been here when this character came? And then why not? Why not? It's my book. And so I put myself there. <laughs> you know. And then I thought I was probably going to cut it out later. But then at some point, when I began to think of the ways in which I wanted to engage with the character's view of women, um, I decided to turn myself, that character, into a woman. But also, at the same time, I was thinking, look, the reality is that people are going to ask, is it Goni you, yeah, the Goni yeah, character? Course. And the answer will be, well, Furo is me. Mm-hmm. Every character in that book, the white man, his mother, the cockroach that scuttles under the bed in the first scene, everything is me because it's my view of the world. It's the way it's all filtered through me. And in that sense, a novel is always the person who writes it. But it's also a collection of the things the person has experienced. So it's also my mother. Mm. It's what my mother taught me. It's also the books I read in school. And so in that sense, I realized I was writing a book about identity and wanted to play with that as much as possible. And also knew that, um, in a sense, there had been a conversation going on in Nigeria at the time I was writing this book about a gay marriage, mm. which had been criminalized in Nigeria at that time, even oh, though... Really? Um, yes, this was in um, 2011, I think, about. Nigerian government, well, the Nigerian president, was facing a tough re-election, which he felt he was going to lose, which he ultimately lost. And so, to kind of distract people from the issues they were facing, which was about oil subsidies, you know, minimum wage, he, his people put forward, the, um, um, his allies put forward um, a piece of legislation at the Senate about and get to criminalize gay marriage because in many parts of in the U.S. parts of the U.S. at that time it had just been legalized, and so a topic that had nothing to do with Nigeria in the sense that there are gay people in Nigeria, but to my knowledge, no one had come forward saying we want to get married. They were just saying, give us mm. basic rights first. Mm. They, put, they brought forward this gay marriage bill, and that so distracted people that you know, even people who said, I will vote against this man, said, well, actually, I agree with this legislation. Mm. And so there was all this going on. And so a lot of um, intellectual class, a lot of my friends had gone to join protests against this gay marriage bill. I wanted to go, um, but I'm not the sort of person to join protests. <laughs> and, so, um, and so I felt one of the ways I could lend my voice to that was to sneak in someone who had trans- transitioned, in a sense, into the book mm. um, and put my name to that person so that if someone comes and challenge, challenges me about it. And so, in a sense, that was when the political began to seep into the, you know, into the book. But... Um, so you can see it's just a lot of stuff. I just threw a lot of stuff into the book. But yeah. um, at the bottom of it was about identity. Mm. It was about identity and what's... Um, because, for example, I know in this world, in the world today, it would have been easier to explain, to find some way of explaining how my character became a woman. And it would have been easy to just change the name, not yeah. call the character Igoni, call it something else, and not have to... You know, but I wanted to tinker with people. So let them think, okay, is it possible that this 
character that I can say as a man behind has become a woman. And I've had people walk up to me and say, so when did you become gay? <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah. yeah I've had yeah. people walk up to me and say, you know, there was someone, there was actually a review in Nigeria that accused me of using this book as my coming out of the closet moment. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know. But what it has done is that it has allowed me, a heterosexual man, to say, well... This is a topic that's shown up in my book, and I am safe by just saying we're running, you know, mm. hiding behind heterosexuality, but still yeah. saying, you know, this is a character I can treat with respect, and I can treat as a character. Yeah. And it's not about your sexuality. Yeah. And so. you can give that character your own name to give it like a more credible position or closer to the author that you're not uh, well, at this safe much, distance. Yeah. Not to mess up with people. Mess with people's, mess heads. With people's heads. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah. As you said, you're not the sort of person that joins protests and writing is a very solitary act, but there are also more collaborative aspects of literature mm. outside of the writing, like publishing yeah. and magazines and uh, creating collaborations. Are you mm. a part of any scene like that uh, in Nigeria? Um, I'm part of a dinner club. Yeah, <laughs> you know, we call ourselves the Surulere Dinner Club, and it's a group of writers and one fashion designer, and there are about five of us, and we meet once every month. So yeah, that's a group. <laughs> that's a group. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, I used to work ten years ago. I worked in a publishing house yeah. as an editor. I did it for two years. I learned a lot from it, but I had to give up the job because it was I, I craved loneliness. Yeah. <laughs> Which is weird, <laughs> which is, um, yeah, in a sense that um, when I'm lonely, I don't want to be lonely. But when I'm not, then I want to be. And so in that sense, I was working in this publishing house. There were people around me. I was spending all my time polishing the work of other writers. And I just wanted to be alone and create my own work. And at some point, I realized, um, really, I wanted to become, I wanted to be a full-time writer. And so give give up the job. And since then, I've been, I've been trying in one way or the other to get, you know, there are many projects to get on board. Um, the opportunities haven't presented themselves much in Nigeria. Um, and when they do, and they pay well, I get involved. Yeah, and when they pay well, you get involved. Yeah. <laughs> Which maybe is not that often in the, uh, not literary often magazines in, and publishing houses. Yeah, not that often. And it also depends. So, for example, right now I'm judging a prize, yeah. a literary prize for African writers, which, is, which was set up by Grey Wolf Press, my American publisher, also the publisher of Claudia Rankin, yeah. great, great yeah. American press, independent press. And many years ago, I'd met the editor, the, the publisher, Fiona McCree, and mentioned to her that she had talked about Nigeria seems to be having this burst of talent, all yeah. these writers coming out. What's, what's? And I said, well, apart from it being in the water, it's also that, you know, we have a lot of, we have the population, but we also, uh, um, Nigeria has 200 million people. Some 20, of them need to be good at writing. Exactly. It's a lot of people, <laughs> but also it's 200 million people from 300 ethnic groups, basically yeah. 300 nations, um, living in one country. <sighs> That's more issues than the, than the EU. Mm. <laughs> you know, the EU has Definitely. to deal with less. 
And so, and so when you see all this talent coming out of Nigeria, just compare it to the EU and say, well, then you have to compare the talent coming out of Norway and Sweden and the UK. That's what's happening in Nigeria, um, just not with a lot of infrastructural and institutional support. And so I said in that sense, the talent is there. The issues are there. Mm. You know, there are too many issues for the average Nigerian writer to sit down and write about marriage. Yeah. There are just a lot more, <laughs> you know. And so, um, you know, the ground, the fertile ground is there. It just needs the plow. It needs the fertilizer. Yeah. It needs the, you know, the processing plants, basically. So that's how I put it. And then I was surprised that a few years later, Growth Press came back to me and said, well, actually, now we're interested in setting up a prize for emerging writers from Africa, and we'd like you to judge the first prize. Um, and even before I knew what they were going to pay me, I accepted. <laughs> because that was, <laughs> that was a worthy project. Yeah. Um, it, didn't, it, it, it helps that they were paying well also. So. Yeah. <laughs> so, so if those opportunities come, that I can do something that's connected to literature and that I feel opens room for other people. Because in a sense, the, the reason why I'm sitting before you now, because remember I'm a Nigerian writer, born in Nigeria, grew up in Nigeria, um, set up a collective of writers to publish my books in Nigeria. My first book, I've published three books. The first one I don't like to talk about because it was self-published. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what I thought my life was going to be. That, well, I'm writing about Nigeria in a black country, and so what will this, you know, white people be interested? They're not interested in my stories, and so I'm going to focus on my Nigerian readership. And it took um, a Kenyan writer called Binyavanga Wainaina, who had come to Lagos at a time when I, was I used to organize a um, reading program. And I'd invited him and um, um, Chimamanda Adichie to come to this event. And then after the event, Binyavanga bought a, that book of mine and then got in touch with me and said, what are you doing now? You know, um, and I said, well, I'm writing. And he said, would you like to come to Kenya for six months, get a beach house in Mombasa, and mm -hmm. money in your pocket and just sit down and write. You said yes? I said, hell yeah. <laughs> yes. Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, but that, and then after that, and I finished my second book there, and then he sent that manus manuscript without my knowledge to the Wiley Agency, mm. and, and they called me up and said, we want to represent you. So that was my path mm. to international publication. And so in a sense, I'm very much aware that as much as I didn't make a concerted effort to be published to be broadcast to the world, it mm. happens because of the people I met. Mm. And in a sense, if I can make those opportunities available for other writers, I will do what I can, as yeah. long as it doesn't interfere with my next book. Yeah. But also, <laughs> you know, it's the realization that um, within the Nigerian space, I will also do what I need to do if those opportunities arise. It's just that I need to write that next book. Yeah. So it's a balancing act yeah. between what I can do as an activist writer, which I have to be, you know, one of the most, the most famous writer in Nigeria is Wale Shoinka. Yeah. And many people know Wale Shoinka, not because they've read any work of his, but because every, every election we've had, every, Wale Shoinka stands up and talks about everything. Yeah. You know, he talks <laughs> about the harvest of yam the last year. He talks about the next elections. He talks about, you know, events in Norway. He talks about it, <laughs> and that's what people know him for, more than as a writer. And so that's one of the ways to get famous. Yeah. Um, as a public figure. 
it's not the way I'm really interested in, but um, if, it arise, if the opportunities arise, I will not be averse to it. Yeah. So you wouldn't say that uh, <laughs> like Chimamanda Ngozi and Teju Cole, they are no. also successful abroad, but you wouldn't call yourself like a group or... Uh, I don't have an American passport. No. <laughs> so that's one difference. But the other difference, again, is that um, you have to keep in mind that um, Chimamanda Adichie is in a curious situation because she's a Nigerian writer. But a Nigerian writer who, in her 20s, got an opportunity to... She left. She yeah. left Nigeria. And in many ways, you know, um, had access to an American literary system that has, you know, that's quite adept, quite, yeah. ex, you know, experienced at creating professional writers and readers. Um, and so she had access to learning how to write. And Teju Cole left Nigeria when he was a young. young. So, so yeah. there's always that American connection. And because of that, and these are great writers, mm. but that has also created a perception in Nigeria where... There are many young writers who come up to me and say, apart from you, to be successful, most writers have to leave Nigeria. And mm. so my idea of becoming a writer is that I have to go to some MFA program in the U.S. Yeah. And I said, well, it probably will help you, because it took me 10 years to learn how to write. Mm. So I should have taken that MFA program that was offered. But I just felt my... my my portal into writing was um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez. And I read, I was a university student studying to become a farmer, studying agriculture. And I picked up this book that had a naked lady on the cover. And um, I had Nobel laureate, and I thought, mm -hmm. good, you know. Good mix, yeah. Good mix. Yeah. You know. <laughs> and then for the next three days, I didn't sleep, barely ate. My mother thought I was sick. Um, till I finished Love in the Time of Cholera. And when I finished that book, I thought, that's how I want to make people feel, mm. you know. And I thought, I knew, well, that's not really Colombia, but that is Colombia. Yeah. And I know, I now understand a part of the South American experience and a Caribbean part of it, because my father's Jamaican. And so for, in a sense, in a sense, it was me understanding family, understanding this faraway place, but also understanding life. And that was the moment, as a 25 or 24 year old that I decided I was going to become a writer mm. but I didn't really become a writer till I was 34 mm. you know kind of because I my approach to writing was to read and learn how to write read and make mistakes mm. I wrote, wrote a lot of crap a lot of which ended up in my first book <laughs> um, but that was my path and because I thought I'm writing for Nigerians to Nigerians about Nigeria and this is a place, remember I told you, I never really understood Nigeria as well as my younger brother did. Mm. This was a place I was still trying to understand. I felt I had to remain in the country to understand it. And so when the chances came to leave the country, I felt, well, how do I really leave now? And then how can I keep writing about this place I don't yet understand? Mm. And so I made a conscious decision to stay. And, and in that sense, my path to writing has been slightly different from, you know, and, and um, it, it's, not, it's not unique anymore. There are many other people who've made, who've had that. But at that time, it felt different, um, which I didn't know. It was just my way of, you know, keep in mind that that was also a political decision. My father's Jamaican, came from Jamaica, 
to Nigeria in 1966 and has lived here all his life. You know, that's where the Barrett comes from. But then all my life I grew up not knowing the Jamaican part of my family until I became a writer and went there on my own and met my family. And so in a sense, I, knew, I know that my father gave up the West and came to settle in Nigeria. And it felt like a betrayal for me to give up Nigeria <laughs> and move to the West. And so that was also going on. And, and so in that sense, it was a conscious decision to remain. It just took me a longer time to get to where I needed to be as a writer, mm. to find, to learn things like style, you know, um, get rid of cliches. And your father, he was a poet and a journalist? He is, he yeah. is a poet and a journalist, yeah. yeah. Well, was. I yeah. mean, he doesn't write poetry much poetry, anyway. Yeah. But he, he's alive and, um, and, and a novelist. His first book was actually a novel. Yeah. Yeah. So we, do you feel that you are part of a sort of a literary tradition through that? Or? My father left my mother when I was 10. Yeah. So you didn't grow up with him. Uh, so I, I, I like to tell people. Yeah. Um, a lot of people like to draw that comparison or draw that connection. That your father is a writer, so he must be proud of you. He yeah. is proud. Um, but my mother had more, a lot more to do with my becoming a writer than my father did. Yeah. I have a lot of mother issues. <laughs> but also that will turn into a great novel exactly look <laughs> yeah. at what he did for Proust I mean yeah. Proust spends his life so well right for Proust. About, <laughs> you know but also so in that sense yes I mean when I first started writing remember I'd been a science student as we say in Nigeria when you're about 13, 14 you have to make a choice about becoming an art student or a science student so to, to learn the sciences physics, chemistry, biology or the arts, government, politics, humanities. Um, and I made that decision to become a science student because my grandmother wanted me to become a doctor. Um, I wasn't equipped to make that decision, and I love to read books. I spent most of my time reading books, so it was a mistake. But I spent the next decade of my life trying to undo that mistake. And it was, I only undid it when I got admitted into the university to study um, medicine, went for the first class, realized we were at some point going to start cutting up dead bodies and walked out of that class, I went to agriculture. <laughs> <laughs> no, because I felt at that point my grandfather, my maternal and paternal grandfathers had, been both, had both been agriculturists and I felt, well, somewhere in my blood it must be there. Yeah. And so I chose agriculture. And then after four years of agriculture, I encountered Gabriel Garcia Marquez and decided I was going to become a writer. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, that's been my part in a way of let life throw itself at you and then you react to it. Mm. And that's, that's also the way I come to writing. It's mm. the way I came to writing this book. Mm. Come up with a sin. Let it throw itself and then you react to it. Mm. And, so, um, and it's also how I learned to write. So that's, it's worked for me so far. It's, it doesn't make for polished, um, seamless works of fiction. But Who wants polished, seamless works of fiction? I, some part of <laughs> so, me does. So, yeah, you do? <laughs> but do you want to write a polished, seamless book next? I'm trying to, but it's not working out, <laughs> which might be a good thing. But I'm now finally, the family I was running away from when I sat down to write this book, I finally come to face it again. So, um, so and you're I'm facing the mother issues in the, uh, the uh, next one. I have to. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I have to. I wanted to speak a little bit about uh, the language. Yeah. You write in English, uh, but there are some words from pig pigeon languages. And as yeah. you mentioned, in Nigeria, it uh, has multiple languages and yeah. multiple 
countries almost within the country. Yeah. Uh, how does that language situation play into your writing? Hmm. That was something else that came up when I, when I read um, The Metamorphosis. Because at the time I was reading it, I realized at some point, I went to Google some things about Kafka, and um, realized he had written in German. He was a Jew in a Czech city writing in German. And I didn't happen to see any newspaper articles that I, you know, asked Kafka, why are you writing in a foreign language? You know, why are you writing in a, you know, hegemonic language in a sense? Mm -hmm. um, that is a question that many writers from the African continent who write in what came as colonial languages have to answer. And they have answered these questions mostly from Nigerians. Yeah. And so I've had to answer you know, to that in Nigeria, that why are you writing in English? And can you really write English mm. the same way D.H. Lawrence did? And my response is, I don't I have no intention of writing English the way D.H. Lawrence did. <laughs> you know, what I intend to do is to write English the way it's used. It's spoken in Nigeria, right? English mm -hmm. the way I understand it in Nigeria. And then, you know, you know let, let it work on that level. Mm -hmm. And now that's an easy thing for me to do as a Nigerian because, again, I'm in a bit of a pri privileged position because I'm fortunately from what we call the Nigerian middle class. And the middle class in Nigeria is a minority. In many other, in many, you know, rich countries across the world, the, the middle class is the major class. This, most people are from like the middle you, class. Yeah. In Nigeria, it's a minority. Um, and one of the things, one of the, the, you know, one of the privileges you get as a middle class person is education. Education is taken for granted. And so when I dropped out of university, my mother kicked me out of her house because you don't, as a middle class boy do that, you go to school. Mm. You get that degree and then you decide what you want to do with your life. And so in that sense, middle class people get a university degree. Mm. Um, and so in, in that sense, um, education was always taken for granted. I never had issues with books. Mm. My mother was an English language teacher. My father was a writer. Mm. Books abounded. Yeah. You know, my father was Jamaican, my mother was Nigerian. They, they spoke in English, yeah. and so that so was English the language. English is your first language. It's my first language. Yeah. It's a language I grew up, you know. And so, in that sense, when I will meet my, you know, for example, I always passed English language as a as a school in ex examination school course in exams without even reading it mm. because it was the language I was in Marston. And when I opened my mouth, I didn't sound like the Queen of England, but I understood everything she was saying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And so, so in that sense, that's my approach to the language. Mm. I can ape D.H. Lawrence. Yeah. I can imitate him, you know. But I don't have any, I'm not interested in what he's doing with language. I'm interested mm. in it as a reading exercise, but it doesn't speak to my reality as a Nigerian. Mm. And what I'm interested in is capturing the ways in which English is used in Nigeria mm. and transmitting that in some way mm. in, into, into a living language, into literature. So that for me, it's all, because as a writer, I'm also dealing with language. Mm. And so for me, that's an exciting project. Mm. Do you speak any of the other languages that are spoken in Nigeria? Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't. You don't, and, yeah. And, um, but, well, I do. Um, a friend told me 
some time ago that I shouldn't say I don't because um, I do. I speak pidgin. Mm. Now, the thing about pidgin, which is a language, mm. the problem is that it's not accepted like a language within Nigeria. Mm. So imagine my, my surprise, my admiration for Jamaica. When I visited Jamaica and went to the University of the West Indies and saw that they have, um, there was a department of Patswa. Mm. There was a department, actually, and you will see Jamaicans of every level of, you know, working class, middle class, wealthy rancher, all can speak Patswa. Mm. Whereas in Nigeria, a certain class are trapped in pigeon. Mm. Another class can move in and out of pigeon, like the middle class. And there are some mm. people who just cannot speak pigeon. Mm. Um, and so in a sense, pigeon is still a class-based language. Mm. And it's a language that has not been accepted by academia. And so we don't ha- really have dictionaries for pigeon. So when my American publishers or my British publishers want to edit the pigeon in my book, they have to come to me. Yeah, and ask. <laughs> yeah, and ask. Because they can't find the material. And I, then I have to direct them to the relevant informal authorities on pidgin. And so, and so in that sense, that's where the insecurity comes about calling pidgin a language. But it is a language. Because I'll give you a story. I met a, um, a man, a writer from Equatorial Guinea. I met him in Bangladesh. And I was this writer from Nigeria. And Equatorial Guinea speaks Spanish. That was the conquering language there and has become the um, official language. Whereas I speak English. And then so we met in Bangladesh and we, can, we couldn't converse because he spoke Spanish, I spoke English. But then at some point, I say something in Pidgin and he says, I, I understand you. you know? And then yeah. we start talking and then at some point we can converse in Pidgin. And it turns out that because Equatorial Guinea is in West Africa, yeah. south, you know, southwestern Africa. And because Nigerian fishermen for many years had gone to Equatorial Guinea by boats, mm. without visas, <laughs> you know, to buy fish, and had to speak, converse. Pigeon was a thing on, on, in the coastal areas of Equatorial Guinea. So even though they spoke Spanish and their pidgin is slightly different because it's, it's more a patois because it has other languages. So it has the, the Spanish, it has Spanish words, it has French from the Cameroons. So it's more mixed. Whereas the Nigerian pidgin is fully trapped in English and the native languages. So mm. when we say pidgin, pidgin is a conglomeration of English and over 300 native languages. Mm. Um, and so, but... I met this Afri- fellow African writer in Asia, and we were speaking in Pidgin. It is a language, <laughs> and I speak it. <laughs> but it just is not... Um, it's not officially recognized. It's not recognized. No. So when you go to Wikipedia... Not as a written language or uh, When you go to Wikipedia, French is even recognized before Pidgin. Mm. And more people speak Pidgin in Nigeria than mm. French. But French is... you know. So, so that's, that's a curious thing about working in the spaces where institutions that have not yet embraced you. Yeah. Um, but you can see the ways it, in which it's becoming accepted and acceptable in literature. And so you will find Tejukul writing, you know, putting some pigeon in there. Mm. You'll find Chimamanda Adichie putting some pigeon in there. And you'll find me putting a whole lot of pigeon in there mm-hmm. because I'm yeah. very comfortable in the language. And, um, Yeah. Now, uh, my younger brother speaks native Nigerian languages. Um, I, did, I don't speak my mother tongue, 
Calabari, my mm -hmm. mother's language, Calabari, and I don't speak the language of the areas in which I've grown up, um, Yoruba, partly because um, I was a bookworm, and uh, my parents, of course, spoke in English, because my father's Jamaican, and so that's what I grew up with. Uh, my mother didn't take, wasn't interested in teaching me a language, because I'm assuming, you, I mean, you learn language as a child before you know you're learning language, mm -hmm. and so if I grew up to be this, and I don't speak the language, and obviously someone didn't teach me. Yeah. You know, so that's her <laughs> fault. You know. But at the same time, I did, at some point, try to make a conscious effort to pick up languages, but I just found I was more interested in perfecting the sentence my sentence structure in English. And so it was, the writing became a distraction from you know, learning other languages. And so my brother, who you know, is a better speaker of native languages than I am, mm. But I'm a better writer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Um, so I don't know how we're doing on time, Andreas. Uh, five more minutes, good. Uh, so um, now we're speaking about languages. Yeah. Uh, historically, of course, we know that there's a debate between, for example, the Kenyan Nugugiwa Tiongu, who was of the opinion that. Uh, since English was the language of the oppressors, it shouldn't mm -hmm. be used. And then you have Chinua Cheba who mm. said language can be used in any, you know, the English yeah. language can uh, describe we'll, any. Yeah. Uh, we'll take it and remake it. Yeah, yeah. take it and remake it. Uh, it seems that you are uh, on oh, yeah. the Acheba side then. <laughs> Fully. Yeah. And I have no choice. Yeah. <laughs> because I'm trapped in English. <laughs> you know? So, you know, that decision was made for me before I was born. Yeah. But there's also the reality. Um, I'm a full-time writer, and I have to pay bills in Lagos. And one of the reasons I can pay bills in Lagos is because my book is translated into Chinese. It's translated, it's published in the U.S., it's published in Italy, even though they have Salvini, they buy my yeah. books. So, <laughs> they still you know, buy your books. They still there, buy yeah. my books. And that money is what enables me to, be, you know, to live as a writer in Nigeria. And that's a reality. Mm. Book sales, if I were to depend on book sales as a Nigerian writer, I would be a civil servant. Yeah. You know, so, um, and so that's a reality. Which you don't and, want to end up as. Well, who knows? <laughs> it might be further for the next book. Yeah. But anyway, um, and, and that's a reality of... Um, of life, you know, that I might want to be read by Nigerians, I want to be read by Nigerians, but it doesn't mean that I don't want to be read by Norwegians, it doesn't mean that I don't want to be read by people from Mars. I mean, when I sat down and read this Colombian writer, I know he probably wasn't thinking of this Nigerian 24-year-old when he was writing Love in the Time of Cholera, but it spoke to me. And so I really believe as a writer, because that's how I was formed as a writer, that blackers one day will speak to some seven-year-old Norwegian girl, <laughs> and that's fine. <laughs> you know, and that's expected. That's what books do. And so because that was my path to becoming a writer, um, I wrote because I read. And I wrote because um, I read enough that I felt I had something to say. Um, that, in a sense, I forgot what the question was. <laughs> anyway. No, it was about the language uh, situation, whether that is still like oh, yes. a relevant debate. Uh, it's not. Yeah. It, uh, um, oh, yes, in Gugi and mm. Walesheng yeah. and um, Chinua. Yeah. 
the majority of Nigerians read in English. Mm. So let me, let me just keep it simple. Majority, yeah. If you're a Nigerian educated in Nigeria, you're educated in English. So there's no middle-class Nigerian who doesn't speak English. And so when we middle-class people migrate, we go to you know, the UK and we become doctors. We go to you know, the US and we become professors because we're grounded in that language. Um, people out of the middle class have problems with language, with discussing it in, in a language that can travel internationally. Mm. And, um, um, and that also reduces their access, the ways in which they can leave the country, which also breeds the desperation that you sometimes see um, manifested on TV screens. Mm. Um, and so in that sense, speaking as the inheritor of this tradition... I write for people who can read in English because that's how we're educated. There is nobody, you know, most people who speak Igbo, for example, or Yoruba, these are two major languages in Nigeria, or Hausa, most people who speak those languages cannot read in that language because they are not educated. And so if you were educated within the formal Nigerian school system, you were educated in English and then taught how to read Yoruba from the English. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, and so in, in, in essence, when Ngugi Young writes in Kikuyu, and I spent six months in Kenya, so I have some you know, idea of what's going on there. People who speak Kikuyu can't even read the language because they can read in English and they're, they're better readers in English than they are in Kikuyu. They're better speakers of Kikuyu than they are readers of Kikuyu. So in that sense, is this weird space where they are not, you don't find secondary schools that teach students solely in Gikuyu mm. or, you know, or Swahili. Yeah. They teach them in English, and then they teach them Swahili. You know? and, so, and so you find that most people who can read, first start reading in English, start with English primers, and then move on to other languages. And so your readership is in English. And so you will have, in Google Watch Young, then has, you know, writing Gikuyu, and nobody buys the book. And then when he translates it into English himself, yes. and then it's published in the UK, then the Kenyans buy the book. So they are all <laughs> waiting for the book to come up. You know, and that, those are the realities. Okay, that's how I was trying to make that connection yeah, between yeah, yeah. the existing systems of um, publication and, and the realities that... I actually don't mind, I, apart from the fact that I want to do interesting things with English, the language I speak, I also don't mind the fact that it gives me access to the world. Because, look, I can assure you if I was writing in Yoruba, I wouldn't be sitting in Oslo today speaking to you. <laughs> because who will translate the book? How many Yoruba to Norwegian translators exist? <laughs> but yeah, a gazillion English too. And so basically, writing in English, an accident of history, has just given me access to the world. And so if the British can take advantage of that, so hell yeah, I'm taking advantage of that. <laughs> as long as I'm not going around, you know, hurting anyone or harming anyone in the process. And I might, in a sense, be bringing new life to the language also. And it just ha- so happens that is the language I'm trapped in. Yeah. So, so I'm the sort of person who takes, a bad, or takes the situation he's faced with and tries to make the best you can out of it. Um, I spent so long answering that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, writing this book in English brought you here, as you say, and uh, we'll yeah. certainly hope that uh, someone will pick it up for translation. But writing this book in English also got me Nigerian readership exactly. because there is no way. My mother's 
group. If I read this book in Calabari, for example, it's 500,000 people in Nigeria. People who speak Yoruba, about 30 million people. People who speak Igbo, about 25 million people. People who speak Hausa, about 40 million people. These are nations. How does the guy writing in the language that only 500,000 people speak want to sell that book to his fellow countrymen? So as much as we have all these ethnicities, all these nations in Nigeria, we all interact in English. And until the day the government says we've made a decision that the language we're interacting is Igbo, I am not going to be making those decisions. I will write in the language with which I can converse with most of my countrymen. And it just so happens that's the language with which I can also talk to Norwegians and Americans and British people. And I will not apologize for that. No reason to apologize for that. <laughs> Thank you very much, Igeni. You've been listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more episodes and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud and our website. The music is by Apotek.